Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Reimagined Schools podcast. I'm your host, Greg Goins, and we're back in the saddle to bring you another great conversation this week on how to lead transformational change in your school. This week, I'm delighted to share my recent discussion with Shane Safir and Jamila Dugan, co-authors of a wonderful book titled Street Data, a new generation model for equity, pedagogy, and school transformation. Shane Safir is an award-winning teacher, former principal, and leadership coach that specializes in providing equity-centered professional development for school districts. Dr. Jamila Dugan is also a leadership coach, learning facilitator, and researcher who champions equity-centered schools and parent empowerment. Together, this dynamic duo has created a masterpiece in Street Data, a best-selling book that explores a different application of data to help diagnose the root causes of inequity to create a new model to transform learning in our schools. Be sure to follow them both on Twitter at Shane Safir and at Jamila Dugan. Before we get into this week's episode, I also want to give a big shout out to my friends at Rocket PD, who now serve as the official sponsor of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Be sure to check them out at rocketpd.com. So let's get to it. My conversation with Shane Safir and Jamila Dugan begins right after this quick promo from the Education Podcast Network. I'm Josh Schwartz. And I'm William Millingworth. Hosts of the High Tech Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reimagined Schools Podcast. So excited to bring in not one but two fantastic guests today. They are the authors of a great book entitled Street Data, a new generation model, a next generation model, excuse me, for equity, pedagogy, and school transformation. A big welcome to Shane Safir and Jamila Dugan. How are you guys? Hello. So nice to be here. Well, yes, thank you. Thanks. As I said, I'm a big fan of the book. I know you guys have had a lot of success and uh, probably are pulled in a lot of different directions to talk about the work. So I uh, definitely want to get into uh, this idea of what street data is and how this idea really came to fruition. So I guess that's probably a good place to start. And, and Shane, I'll talk with you uh, first, and then we'll kind of uh, flip back and forth here. Take me back to the original conversation, maybe a conversation you had with Jamila, or maybe a conversation you had with a colleague, or even a conversation you may have had with your publisher about why this book was so important to the both of you. Whew, there's so many layers to that history. Um, let me try to see what kind of sifts to the top. So I was working with the National Equity Project in 2008 when the seeds of this idea kind of got planted. And um, we, were, we were doing a project called Impact 2012, and there were folks who came to train us in Oakland from New York City who were doing something called Scaffolded Apprenticeship Model or SAM. And they talked about these different levels of data. I don't remember exactly the language they used, but it was essentially like level one, two, and three. And it really captured my attention. Like, why don't, why don't we talk about data in these more layered and complex ways? Um, and then when I went to write The Listening Leader, I was trying to frame that first book around you know, kind of what are the reasons that listening is so important and situating listening in connection to this larger project of working toward equity. 
And data came back up into my consciousness as one of the ways that we can actually think about listening as a lever for school transformation and for equity. Um, and as I talked to a couple of different folks, particularly I'll shout out Audrey Amos, who um, was a principal I was coaching at the time. I remember sitting on her deck and talking about these levels of data. This metaphor emerged of satellite and map and street. And I just wrote a couple pages about it in Listening Leader. It wasn't much. It was almost like an afterthought. And then um, as Jamila and I talked about, it just, you know, it started getting its own like energy in the field. Like people just started talking about it and tweeting about it and asking about it. And as we built our and deepened our collaboration, we started working with it. And we found that teams were really grabbing on to the idea of street data and to the, really the calling, the call to action to get down on the street level and to listen deeply um, to students and community members. So that's a little bit about the, you know, the kind of origin story, but Jamila could certainly add to that. Yeah, I think that's right on, especially the piece around all of the work that we facilitating people just really grabbing on to the idea of street data. And I guess I would just um, add that we were talking with people a lot about the way that we talk um, about kids and the work that we do, not just let's figure out what to change, but how do we talk about what's the discourse that we use when we're talking about school transformation work. And I found, um, which I love talking about discourse, but I found that people really resonated. Don't you remember this, Shane, with using street data as a way to shift our discourse because it's not yes. just about the practices that we um, use in schools but really how we talk about it and street data is just such a nice entry point um, from every level practice level mindset level discourse level yeah you reminded me of those early pds in east side union and east san jose mm -hmm. where we did like a listening campaign with students and we put student voices like a gallery walk all around the space and people would just walk and it did it transformed how they were talking and thinking about the work they had to do. You know, I think it uh, probably a, a good place to start is to really reflect on this traditional model of, of big data. And I, as a former school superintendent myself for many years, I also work with principals and aspiring school leaders here in Kentucky. But uh, as a society, we're always fascinated with numbers. Everywhere you look, it's numbers, numbers, numbers. I really feel like schools have lost sight of how to define success. If all you're looking at is standardized test scores and how many kids graduated or made the honor roll, you're really missing a golden opportunity there to really see kids and see them develop and see them achieve their hopes and dreams. Why do you think we've continued this uphill battle for so long with this traditional schooling model that only looks at one set uh, of metrics? Would you like me to start with that one, Shane? Well, I, I mean, I think the I'm going to be straightforward with the, my thoughts on that and then kind of come back to something you said. I think we're just deeply entrenched. It is everywhere. It is the thing that is privileged. Even when you think about colleges and the U.S. news reports on what colleges do well and all of that's all based on big numbers. I, I would encourage people uh, to really look into just how much those numbers don't make sense with the rankings for schools, but it's what we pay attention to and we've been entrenched in it for so, so long. But I think in terms of this traditional model, one of the things I've felt more inclined to kind of demystify a little bit is that we're not actually saying don't look at numbers. That's not actually what we're saying. We're saying that right now that's all we look at is these big numbers, right? And so we are disproportionately focused on that. And there's things that are tied to that, right? Your money in your district is tied to 
the numbers, the outcomes that kids have, right? There are policies that are tied to those numbers. The way that we operate in schools is, is tied to those numbers. So I just wanna say, we believe that when you look at a school district and or a school and you see that there is disproportionality with a certain group of kids, students at the margins usually, we can make some assumptions about who kids are that are going to show up in those numbers. Okay, now let's put that not to the side, but understand that as one form of data and then disproportionately focus on the day-to-day -day experiences. And so right now, for a number of reasons, we are, we are not, um, our epistemology, our way of being is not oriented that way. And so when you have for the longest of time, one group of people, and I'm gonna say white folks, white upper middle-class folks in charge of how we decide who is a value and who is not and all of those things, and it goes on and on at every level of the system, then you're gonna see us focusing there as opposed to, let's say an indigenous way of knowing or an Afrocentric way of knowing that really focuses on storientation uh, as, a, as a word I learned from Shane, but story and the day-to-day -day experiences in the community of people, that's not really who we listen to. You know, We're just now starting to listen to people um, at the margins. And so I think that when we are again in a place where just one group of people is largely defining and we you know have been in a system that has these focus areas across um, levels then we're going to stay in that kind of place um, and i think the last thing i'll say about that is that it feels good it feels good for us to look at the numbers and feel like i have a sense of what's going on it, it feels i mean there's so many folks, me included, that even like looking at spreadsheets, it feels like I have a good understanding of what's happening. But I think we forget that as soon as we get that feeling of, you know, I have figured out something, it's it becomes very technical. It becomes a very technical feeling as opposed to really the feeling of being with people and kind of understanding what their actual experience is. It's like a quick dopamine hit versus a deeper, long, sustained, um, complex picture. So I think us being entrenched is what really gets in the way um, and why it's so hard to move toward a different uh, model. I love listening to Dr. J talk about that. That was beautiful. And um, it's making me think about one of the early provocations we have in the book, which is that what is measurable is not the same as what is valuable. And I think as parents and educators, we're often talking about like, what do we value? Like what matters when we send our babies to school every day? And, you know, I will tell you that increasingly what matters to me as a parent is my child's experience of well-being, their experience of connection, their sense of belonging, their sense that they are valued and affirmed exactly as they are. Um, and you can't capture that in a test score, right? You can't, there's no metric for that. It's like, that is such a more narrow conversation than what we're actually like looking for, for our children, for all our children, not just those that we're raising, right? So I think um, there's something in this expansiveness, you know, around ways of knowing and being and what we need to measure. That's really an invitation for all of us to think much more broadly um, than we have been. And, you know, probably my least favorite term in education is when I hear people talk about making data-driven decisions. And yes, I understand that. I probably even use that vocabulary myself in a meeting along the way in my career. 
uh, because you don't just want to pull things out of the air and make decisions if you don't have some kind of data to support that decision making. But I guarantee you in schools all across the country right now or this afternoon or whatever time zone they're in, a principal's getting ready to have a PLC meeting. They're going to dive into charts and graphs and all types of data, big data, and they're going to try to solve all these big problems that they're having academically based on just those metrics. Um, and I, I tell people, I shout it from the rooftops, you're looking at the wrong things. You're asking the wrong questions. How can we use a street data approach to kind of flip that narrative and change that meeting structure? Jane, you want to start there this time? Sure, I can start. Um, I mean, I think first we have to reframe how we think about the adults in our buildings, right? So there's a there's a there's a kind of implicit set of assumptions in that meeting archetype, which you are absolutely right is happening right now all across the country and beyond. And I think it's a very kind of like objectifying vision of an educator as this widget who's trying to make, get, get us to these little incremental gains, right? And in percentages or incremental decreases in the percentages of things we don't want. Um, and it's really dehumanizing. And here we are sitting, we can, you know, wring our hands about the mass exodus of teachers and principals from classrooms across the country right now. I mean, everyone I talk to, even up here in BC, there's these teacher shortages. And yet we're not looking in the mirror, we're not holding the system's lens on how are we actually creating environments that educators wanna be a part of, wanna stay in, right? Where they feel connected, humanized, cared for. And so I think my hope, I guess, with the street data model is that it provides, it provides a different way of thinking about adult learning that is really rooted in what Jamila was talking about earlier, this more expansive epistemology, many ways of being that values all the ways people show up rather than just this narrowly defined kind of transactional quantitative orientation. And we can, we can radically reimagine professional learning if we actually take this up, right? If we actually, if we actually embrace some of the core ideas and principles in the book, um, hopefully it becomes not a roadmap, because neither of us, I think, think of this book as like a script or a curriculum or roadmap or anything like that, but an invitation to a new way of being together. And I think that could make a big difference in how, how we sustain and retain, ultimately, teachers um, in, our, in our schools and systems. What do you think, Jamila? Yeah, and I think to the point of PLC specifically, because I remember being formally trained in data-driven instruction, which again, I want to say like, is not a bad thing, right? But it's how it's framed. So you have your same PLC meeting, right? And you want to talk about data. Well, what are you spending your, you know, what's the proportion of time you're spending on which piece? So I think before I even get to the PLC meeting, what does it mean for us to help make sure kids are well? Or what does it mean for us to make sure that kids, you know, are performing at the highest levels in the way that feels congruent to them, right? How do we need to operate as a team to do that? Well, first, we need to be answering that question before the PLC. All right, let's assume that we've answered that question. We can look at the data. I, I want to make sure kids can read. Don't, don't get me wrong here. I think this is extremely important. We can look at that. We're going to spend about five minutes on looking at, here's what the snapshot says around where kids are. Fine, if that's something that people want to um, continue to do. The majority of that meeting now is to pull down the names of our kids and say, well, what's Bobby's experience in the classroom? Let's go and look at 
Bobby's experience. We're going to break up in teams. We're going to take observational notes. We're going to look at Bobby's student work. We're going to just pick two or three kids, right? And really hone in on their experience. And if you get to a, a, a expansive place, you can have video of the classroom experience of said kid. And then the question is not about, so what's wrong with Bobby? It's now, well, what do we notice about our pedagogy that might be setting Bobby up to do well on said assessment? Is the assessment even the appropriate thing to allow Bobby to really show his cultural wealth and who he really is? Is that what it's about? Let's really talk about pedagogical things that might be going on that are helping Bobby or not. And then let's, by the end of that PLC meeting, make one commitment that's a pedagogical commitment to help facilitate Bobby's learning a little bit better and then come back. And now you don't need to start with Bobby's scores. Now you're starting with the street data that you were given. You go through that cycle over and over again, and then you come back and you're, you should see a better right-sizing of the bigger data by focusing on Bobby's experience. And I almost, I feel like, you know, it's going through the equity transformation cycle, but I think that really it's how we're framing the purpose of these PLCs way up here. And if they're grounded in big dreams and big goals. And then as Shane said, thinking about it as an adult learning experience, how does that shift? And then thinking about it as a real opportunity, even people can't see me smiling, but my, I start to smile, thinking of it as a real opportunity to say, wow, how can I shift my pedagogy and go even bigger, right? Given where Bobby is. And even, I mean, as soon as I start saying that, just so many different ways of talking and abundance and asset-based things come to my mind when I even think about that PLC. The PLC is fine. Data-driven is fine. But how we're defining that and what that really means is where I think uh, the bread and butter is with shifting what we want to see in classrooms and in schools. Hey, guys, Dr. Greg Goins here, and I hope you're enjoying this week's episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. We'll get right back to the conversation after this quick shout out from our sponsor, Rocket PD. There's one thing we can all agree on. The days of sit and get PD are over. That's why my friends at Rocket PD have assembled the best experts on the planet on the hottest topics on education with a mission to create the world's largest community of educators committed to helping teachers and staff succeed. So prepare for launch by going to rocketpd.com where you can connect your team with the most inspiring educators on the topics that matter. It's professional learning fueled by passion. Visit rocketpd.com to join the Rocket PD community and download your free ultimate guide to K-12 PD. So join Rocket PD today and get the help and support that you've been searching for. And I, I think that's very well said. And, you know, I think obviously the other really big piece to, to your book. And again, you need to run out and get this book. It's fantastic. It should be in every professional library for teachers and school administrators. But how um, street data really drives equity in schools. I think a lot of people, a lot of us, and I'll put myself in that category, talk about equity, but we're not really sure what that looks like in the classroom and in the schoolhouse. And I think you both did a wonderful job in this book of really kind of laying that out. So can you speak to that, both of you? Yeah, I can start there because my favorite thing to talk about because people throw a lot of words around with 
you know, our definitions around with equity. And I think that's one of our biggest issues is not understanding what we're talking about when we say that. So for me, it's become something that is very important to articulate. And I, I would argue that people should start there with fluency and understanding what it is we're talking about. So when I say <laughs> equity, I, I ascribe to working toward equity, which is twofold in the most simplest form, Pro, proactively identifying the barriers to the success of a child based on sets of factors, proactively identifying the barriers. And then on the flip side of that, proactively identifying what is the opposite of that, right? How do I figure out if a student has an IEP, let's say, what's going to be the barrier to their success? I can tell you like six different things that are going to be the barrier. It's going to be low expectations is going to be one. It's a lack of knowledge around the IEP. It's a lack of seeing the accommodations or modifications in the classroom. These are all barriers, right? Because there's a, a way we see students with IEPs. Okay, I can identify those. The, the class, the teacher is going to teach them all those things. Now, working toward equity is us really thinking about what does it mean to cultivate the genius of this child? Because this child is like any other child, right? What do we have to put in place? What do we have to disrupt? What do we have to change so that we are now cultivating this student? That's the other piece of working toward equity I feel like people miss. And so in order to do that, I can't go ask Jamila, who's the high performing student who does school really well. I was literally just saying, that we're not serving students with IEPs well. So in street data, we're saying you have to choose the margins in order to work toward equity. The margins in this case being a student who has an IEP are groups of students who have IEPs, right? And I have to go there and I have to ask that same question around what are the barriers to success? And then how do we pre proactively reimagine something else? And so then I use the street data model to help me actualize that. And I just think it's such a beautiful way of thinking about operationalizing, working toward equity, because then it doesn't become all these nebulous words and terms and all that. It becomes very concrete. We want every child to succeed. We sure, let's start with the who's not succeeding piece. I prefer to think about the genius of kids first, but we look at the genius of all of our kids. Well, whose genius are we not tapping into so much? Okay, students with IEPs are really coming up in the big data and in conversation. Let's not forget that parents are often telling us when we're not meeting the needs of their kids and the kids are telling us, but sure, we wanted to start with the big data. You look at that and then you say, well, okay, we'll put the data over here. We're gonna put that on that shelf. Now, how are we gonna get in the weeds to really change the experience? Well, we gotta go to street data for that. And we have to go to the, through the equity transformation cycle for that. And the, and the last piece I'll say about that is the key piece um, I think when we're talking about not just disrupting, right, that's like listening and uncovering and trying to understand what um, folks experience is, but when we get to reimagine, that is where the transformation comes. Because if I get and find out that there are these, you know, ways that students with IEPs, there, there's ways that we can be tapping into their genius, I have to be willing to go big and say, what could we do completely different? I typically need to do that in partnership with kids or, or their families. What could we do? And then after reimagine, you've got to be willing to move. You have to be willing to move. Otherwise, it's not working toward equity. It's just talking about it. And again, the nebulous, big, vague terms that don't really help us operationalize um, what we're really trying to do in terms of serving all kids. That's my thought on that. Shane, what do you <laughs> Yeah, I'll grab the baton in the reimagine part of the cycle because I think what 
um, what we often talk about, and this is explicitly the guiding principle of chapter five, is that equity work is first and foremost pedagogical. And so there's this trend in the field where you've got the separation, right? Of the uh-huh. equity people over here and then the literacy people and the math people and the instructional coaches and all these folks over here. And then you got your like, come in, you know, drive by, drop in kind of PD experts, quote unquote, around equity. And I think an intention of this book is to understand that if we are going to reimagine our systems in ways that are radically inclusive, that serve every child, that affirm and love and value every child, it has got to hit the classroom level. <laughs> like it begins in some ways and ends at the classroom level. And yet so often we're only reimagining the equity policy or we're only reimagining the team as Jamila writes so brilliantly in the chapter. We've got the team, we've got the person, you know, we've got these kind of structural fixes, but we're not figuring out how it gets down to the classroom level. And so um, as I think about that, what came to mind this morning for me was um, the First Peoples Principles of Learning from British Columbia, where I'm currently living, which comes from um, indigenous education leaders in the province. And some of these principles around what the classroom could look like are just so beautiful. So I'm gonna read a couple, because for me, they speak to, I think, what we're trying to aspire toward. Um, So learning ultimately supports the well-being of self, family, community, the land, the spirits, and the ancestors. That's a lot bigger than a drill and kill session, getting ready for a test, right? (laughs) Um, Learning involves generational roles and responsibilities. How are we expanding our classrooms beyond the walls, beyond the teacher to student, right? Into the cultural wealth of the community. Um, Learning is embedded in memory and history and story, right? And then the last one I'll share is learning requires exploring one's identity. This is such... um, for me, like a beacon of light toward the kind of curriculum and assessment and instruction we could move toward in that reimagine phase if we really get into different relationship with kids and communities and we really do that deep listening at the margins that Jamila talks about. And that's how you get to cultivating the genius of every child, right? You 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 cannot do it by trying to over and over again say like the mark is, you know, college access or, you know, a certain proficiency on a standardized test score. So now we have to figure out our change frame within that. It just right. doesn't, it just doesn't get to equity. It's the, the whole reason why we have inequity is because we keep isolating or marginalizing groups of people. Right. And so again, to operationalize working toward equity, you've got to be in big vision like that. I mean, how, how beautiful and how abundant is that? I mean, starting there is even a huge thing. And then you choose the margins and the groups of people that can help you figure out how you get there. And again, I just always get chills because that is the operationalizing of an idea, i.e. equity, as opposed to equity means you do training on culture, you know, and you do bias training. And then you, you know, you really make sure that people are bought into a sense of belonging. That, that is just so cu- cut up. I feel like I'm seeing in so many places, but it's all in the spirit of equity, but there's no coherence or focus or real big principles as Shane just mentioned. Yeah. And again, good stuff. I mean, spot on all the way around. And I certainly want to respect your time. I could talk with you both all day about this fascinating topic and all the great work you're doing. But one of the things uh, I want to hit before we jump off here is you're, you're talking about the actual classroom setting and how that also needs to change. We're talking a lot about deeper learning. And we should be. There's a big push here in Kentucky for for deeper learning and and developing those type of skills. 
I've been framing this up for a long time that the role of the teacher has continued to evolve and change. And if the teacher's still spending the entire class period doing all the work in front of the room, you know, doing the lecture, they're not going to be able to kind of sit with kids one-on-one, -on -one, work in small groups, get to know kids on a one-to-one -one, one -one personalized level. And that street data, data may not be accessible if right. the teacher's locked, right. to the, locked to the desk the whole time. So let's just talk about that a little bit, Shane, and we'll begin with you. How does the teacher and the, the pedagogy need to change in order for this to become not something just to reimagine, but to actually implement? Right. No, it's a great question um, because it's this is all fractal, right? So we've got the at the systems level, the big data and the narrow focus on metrics. And then how does that trickle down to the classroom or back up is then we have teachers who are operating this culture of distress and this deficit mindset. How am I going to how am I going to get things a little bit better? Right. Or how am I going to do this or that or intervention or remediation? All these, as Jamil says, like the boomerang equity traps. And so we're trying to be more expansive, as we talked about earlier. And in chapter five, I wrote about a pedagogy of voice. What would it look like to shift away from a pedagogy of compliance, sit and get instruction, we're trying to kind of get through a few tasks, get little incremental gains toward this pedagogy of voice, which um, I think to be true and authentic has to exist for teachers as well, to come back to that theme. Like we have to actually reimagine professional learning so that teachers have a voice and they're pursuing inquiry around things that matter to them. And then ultimately in the classroom, what <clears throat> I think we wanna see is more and more centering of student voice, of student dreams, as Jamil talks about student imagination. Um, and so we have these six simple rules in chapter five that are just like soft kind of invitations of ways teachers might think about shifting their practice, like talk less, smile more. What would it be like if we did very little talking in the classroom, right? We used our voices as adults for critical framing, right, um, of concepts of maybe learning outcomes and of questions, right? Because um, at the end of the day, we want to cultivate environments in which inquiry is the reigning paradigm, right, of instruction that we're asking so many questions and we're not trying to answer the kind of questions that actually keep students deeply engaged, right, that they want to dig into through projects and labs and Socratic seminars and all these kinds of rich pedagogies that have been around for a long time. Um, I think that requires that we minimize the role of grades. It's kind of a controversial topic we've been talking about for a while, or that we at least start to think about grades differently as not the main way that we assign value to student learning, um, that we make learning public, which we talk about there. And that we also kind of radically reimagine our spaces. This is something I've been thinking about a lot. I got to listen to some students um, on a Kiva panel in the spring. And one of the main things that I took away from this is a panel of middle schoolers, really diverse group of about eight middle schoolers. They were so attuned to their learning environment. They could talk about the lights and how the fluorescent lights feel really stressful. They could talk about the way the desks were configured and how it's really hard to collaborate because of this or that. Um, they could talk about where the teacher is in the room. And these are like things you can really reimagine with students, the learning environment, the, the way they walk into a building, the way they walk into a classroom. So all that's to say, this is the stuff that gets me really juiced and excited because it's just endless possibility. When we allow ourselves to, to see much bigger and to dream much bigger, um, and we root in the center of our pedagogy, student voice. May I just add to that piece that I think it's the exact same thing for adults? 
So if we don't model the pedagogy that Shane just described, a pedagogy of voice as adults facilitating the learning of teachers who will facilitate the learning of students, it's going to be really hard for teachers to shift toward the way um, that Shane was just describing. And it's actually not just teachers, now that I say it, it's instructional coaches, it's the restorative coach, it's the whoever the person is, we have to model this way of being so that it, be, it comes alive and teachers are like, oh yeah, like how we did it in PD, right? There's really no difference. And that's something that's talked about in the book as well, um, especially with making learning public. And so I just think it layers on exactly what Shane said about the classroom to any adult learning experience. And that's really across the board, even if you're in a district, wherever. Um, if you're in the district office, it, it doesn't matter if you're not right in the classroom, but we should be deeply um, embedded in the pedagogy we wanna see so that we can facilitate the learning of others to make that happen down to the classroom level. Well, again, great conversation. I'm so thankful that I uh, got to spend some time with you both. Great book, you need to jump out and buy it. I'm sure you can find it wherever books are sold. Uh, as we wrap up, maybe just give our listeners a little bit of an idea how they can connect with you, where they can find you and uh, learn more about your work. Absolutely. I'm probably most active on Twitter, just my name at Shane Safir. My website is shanesafir.com. And if you sign up for my newsletter, it'll contain all the regular offerings um, that Jamila and I do around PD. And um, we love to hear from you all about how the book, you know, how the ideas are situated in your practice, because this is a collaborative project, bringing all this to life. So please stay in touch with us. Uh, same here. My Twitter is at Jamila Dugan, J-A-M-I-L-A-D-U-G-A-N. And then my website is of the same name, jamiladugan.com. And if you're interested in other things that um, I'm talking about right now, um, there's an article in EL Magazine around family partnerships and one in October's issue around radical dreaming. I think that's something that's huge right now that will end up um, coming out more on the website, but definitely in um, EL Magazine, there'll be some things there. Great. Well, thanks again to you both. I hope you have a wonderful fall as we roll through 2022. Uh, hope the weather turns cool wherever you live and uh, everyone's happy and safe and safe travels to you both. Thank you for your time, Greg. So that's a wrap on this episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating and leave a comment wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. As friends of the podcast, I hope you can give me a follow on Twitter at Dr. Greg Goins, where you can learn more about my work as a partnership ambassador with the Modern Classrooms Project and also about my work with Brave Ed, where innovative school districts across the country are leading change through a benefits-based accountability system that allows school communities to redefine student success. So until next time, folks, thanks for listening and keep fighting for change in your schools.